Sure is great to see you. We especially welcome those of you that are with us online uh, in your home or in your place of business or listening maybe while you're driving, hopefully listening and not watching. Take good care wherever you are. And we pray that God gives us a wonderful word from the book of Ecclesiastes. So take your Bible, if you're not there already, and find the book of the Ecclesiastes. When we say the word Ecclesiastes, sometimes it sounds plural, doesn't it? But it's not in the Greek New Testament or in the Greek Old Testament, actually. It's a singular. An Ecclesiastes is a person. It's a preaching, teaching, seeking uh, messenger of truth. And that, of course, would be our good friend Solomon. Solomon is our Ecclesiastes as we study the book that he wrote late in his life, the book in our Bible called Ecclesiastes. And today's the second part, really, of a two-part message that we began last Sunday as we continue to unpack the incredible truth of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, You know, we've chuckled a lot of times uh, as we've gone through these first three messages or so from this wonderful book because it can be a little bit on the downside uh, if you're not reading it with the right set of lenses. But Ecclesiastes is like a breath of fresh air uh, to my 50-something soul. Amen. Uh, Because Solomon just being bone honest with us about the realities of life, and it speaks especially directly. The reason that Ecclesiastes can be an encouragement uh, to people is because those people to whom it's an encouragement know the Lord Jesus Christ. They've got a proper perspective about life as it relates to eternity vis-a-vis the here and now. But not everybody has that. And if you're not living for the Lord, you're going to read the book of Ecclesiastes and say, boy, what a downer. No, quite the opposite. Solomon's trying to get you where you ought to be. He's trying to get you focused on what you ought to be focused on as primary in your life and not as so many uh, make it, uh, not as secondary. So in this Bone Honest book, we are asking the question, what's the point? What's the point of life? What's the point of work? What's the point of relationships? What's the point of money? What's the point of having a retirement account? What's the point of religion? In fact, uh, you could ask the question, what's the point of God? And Solomon, of course, is the author, this aging king of Israel. He's the Ecclesiastes. He's the preacher, teacher, who's giving what amounts to this lengthy sermon. We're taking it in about 12 or 13 sermons. For Solomon, it's all one 12-chapter sermon. And he's talking about what he refers to as life under the sun. What matters and what doesn't as we live in the here and now? What's the meaning of life? What's the real purpose of life? And his conclusion is pretty direct, namely that apart from God, there's not much to point of life at all. Uh, And there have been a lot of philosophers through the year who've basically said that. What's the meaning of life? There is no meaning of life. Well, that's because that person has no conception of God. His life has no room for God. And if your life has no room for the Lord, then it's hard for you or for anybody else to argue that there is a real purpose to life at all. You're no different from the animal kingdom at all. You're no different from the vegetative kingdom. You really don't matter if there is no God. And that's Solomon's main point. Because there is a God, learn to focus on things that are eternal, on things that truly matter. 
He begins, of course, by making that incredibly important and familiar statement in chapter 1, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then here's the conclusion, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all what? Vanity, a striving after the wind. Now, last week, for those of you that were here or either watched, you know we began the first of a two-part study on four worldly pursuits that Solomon chased throughout much of his life. These are things that are still pursued by more people today than just about anything else. People pursue these four things as much as, if not more than anything else, for the purpose of finding purpose and trying to understand joy and contentment and to get those things from their lives. But as Solomon looks back, he confesses all of these things that he's going to talk about to be what I'm calling trivial pursuits that mostly led him to frustration. Two of these we looked at last week, and if you were not here, let me briefly review those, though we won't go back over them in full, but let me briefly review them, and that's probably good for all of us anyway. The first was the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom. This is intellectualism. Solomon says intellectualism is a trivial pursuit when you look at life from the big picture. We might call this educative wisdom. The wisdom that you can gain through the intellectual pursuits of life, through the acquisition of knowledge. Solomon, of course, was one of the best best educated men in the world. He was the best educated man in all of Israel. And certainly, if there's one thing that we tend to more associate with Solomon than anything else, it is, of course, wisdom. We know him to be a man who sought wisdom, a man who asked God for wisdom, a man who had acquired much wisdom throughout his life. And that's what he himself says here in verse 13 of chapter 1. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge And yet, as we recalled last week, the more Solomon learned, the emptier Solomon felt. Twice he calls this vigorous pursuit of educative knowledge and educative wisdom a striving after the wind. He says it's like trying to corral the wind. You just can't do it. It's like trying to herd cats, trying to find purpose in all of that knowledge and all of that wisdom. He couldn't do it. He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, For in much wisdom is much what? Say it out loud. Vexation, perplexity. He was confused the more wisdom and education he required. And then Solomon says, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And that's because all of that learning was filling his mind, but it wasn't changing his heart. And our problem, can I just say this this morning? Our problem is not that we have a hole in our heads, it's that we have a void in our hearts. Well, some of us might have a hole in our heads, but that's another sermon for another day. But that's not our primary problem. There's not a hole in our head. The Bible does not say, trust in the Lord with all your head. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And that's the problem. All of that knowledge and insight and wisdom that you can gain from the academy or from 
self-study, from being an autodidact, all of that knowledge uh, is a chasing after the wind because it can't do a thing to transform your life. Only exposure to divine truth can change the human heart. And that, brothers and sisters, is why you have to know Jesus to know your purpose and meaning in life. You have to know Jesus because you have to know truth, and Jesus made that very clear about himself. I am the truth. You can know the truth, Jesus said, with a capital T, and the truth will what? The truth will set you free. What is truth? I am the truth. And so that's why you must know Jesus. And so in his own way, guided by the Holy Spirit, Solomon is pointing us away from educated wisdom toward divine wisdom by pointing us as led by the Spirit of God to a Savior that we desperately need who would later be called Jesus Christ. And that's the takeaway. Apart from Jesus, there is no truth. Apart from Jesus, there is no wisdom. Apart from Jesus, there is no contentment. Apart from Jesus, there is no peace. Can I just say it? Apart from Jesus, life has no point. The pursuit of wisdom. A second trivial pursuit that Solomon mentions is the pursuit of pleasure. This philosophy is called hedonism, hedonism. A hedonist is somebody that spends his or her life constantly chasing after life experiences that bring them pleasure. And let me just say, if there was ever a well-educated hedonist who ever lived, it was Solomon. This is how chapter 2 begins. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with what? Pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Now Solomon will go on throughout that chapter to say that he tried everything in the world to bring him his life pleasure. He tried sensuality, lots of women, he tried amusement, he tried laughter, he tried alcohol, all of those things we touched upon last week, but no matter what kind of pleasure he pursued, it couldn't bring him a minute's peace because he always had to wake up the next day. I mean, he could binge on Saturday night, but Sunday morning was coming. And then he had to wake up and face life in the real world. And then to make matters worse, he could do the same thing on Sunday night, and Monday morning was coming. And y'all know, as we said last week, Rainy days and Mondays always get you down, right? Life's not always a bucket full of laughs. Sometimes you have to wake up and face rejection. And sometimes you have to wake up and face tragedy. And sometimes you have to wake up and go to a funeral. And sometimes you'll wake up and go to the doctor, not get an altogether good report. Now, without question, does God want you and me to enjoy life? Yes or no? Well, of course he does. The Bible says that. God has created everything for our enjoyment. But you've got to play by God's rules. You've got to play by God's rules, not by your rules. In order to really enjoy life, you have to be able to see and respond to life from God's perspective. That's why we need the Word of God. And the thing about it is when you see and respond to life from God's perspective, when you live with biblical wisdom instead of worldly wisdom, then you can really enjoy life because then you can know who God is, you can know who you are, you can know where you came from, why you're here, where you're going when you die. 
Life has some rough patches, man, and everybody in the room has lived long enough knows exactly what I'm talking about. Trying to mask over those rough patches with games and drugs and fun all the time, as great as games and fun are, it's not going to make the tough stuff go away. And that's why you have to keep an eternal perspective where you live life and you view life not always under the sun but above the sun where the vision is clear and where you can see the Lord and focus on God rather than constantly living your life under the sun and focusing on things all the time that you have made the end all of your life. All right? Everybody with me so far, say amen. And so now we move on to some new ground as we discover a third trivial pursuit. We've seen intellectualism. We have Uh, seen uh, amusement or hedonism, and now we look at materialism, and that is thirdly the pursuit of wealth. Look beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the rest of growing trees, of the forest of growing trees. I made male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Now, if there was ever a man who was accustomed to living what we might call the lifestyle of the rich and famous, it was Solomon. He's basically known for the two W's, for his wisdom and for his wealth, right? And uh, the society of his day you have to remember, was not a custom as we are in the United States of upper income, middle income, lower income strata. In Solomon time, you know how that was societally divided? Solomon and everybody else. I mean, there was King Solomon and then there was the poor. I mean, you may have had some people that ran little merchant shops or whatever and they had what they needed, but basically it was Solomon and everybody else. I mean, he was the Jeff Bezos of his day, the Bill Gates. He was a Saudi crown prince. It's estimated that he had somewhere between half a billion and a billion dollars worth of gold revenue every year of his life. One reference that I looked up estimated his peak net worth in modern dollars, get this, $2 trillion by modern standards. Some have studied these things, and they basically only rank two people in the annals of time as wealthier than Solomon, and that's Caesar Augustus of Rome when he was on the throne, and Genghis Khan, the Mongolian king who basically owned all of what we know as China in his day. But without question, Solomon had everything that a human being could want materially. His home would have graced the cover of Architectural Digest magazine. The interior of his palace would have warranted a full spread in southern living or better homes and gardens. I mean, he had this luxury palace that was at least twice the size as the temple he built for the Lord, maybe larger than that. 
Solomon had an equestrian center, get this, that had over 40,000 stalls for his horses, which means presumably that he had about 40,000 horses. That's a lot of horses. And so his knowledge was unparalleled, his stature was unparalleled, his wealth was unparalleled. I mean, who wouldn't want uh, to have it as good as Solomon? Yet here he is in Ecclesiastes in his aging years wallowing in the mire. Why is that? Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You know, there's a reason that Jesus taught so much about money and material wealth. Most churches don't like to hear their pastor talk about wealth, but Jesus talked about it all the time, all the time. 45 parables or so in the New Testament that Jesus taught, half of them deal with stewardship, how you handle stuff and how you manage things. Is there a reason for that? Yes, because we tend to make those kinds of things idols in the place of God. So that if we have these things and this money, then we're happy. And if we don't, then we're all upset and we lose sight of God. That's idolatry. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, all forms of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. In fact, let's just say that verse together. Put that back on the screen, guys. Let's say it out loud together. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And that's what Solomon found in his own life. Materialism can purchase all kinds of creature comforts, but it cannot satisfy the deepest longings of your life. That great theologian Johnny Carson said one time, the only value of money is that you don't have to, be wor- you don't have to worry about being poor. That's about it. In other words, by itself, money really isn't going to change anything of real and lasting value in your life. So transitory. I mean, here's the thing. Money can buy you health care, but it can't buy you good health. Money can buy companionship, but it can't buy friendship. Money can buy a wedding, but it can't buy marriage. Money can buy a house, but it can't buy a home. Money might buy you a nice vacation break, but it can't buy you lasting satisfaction in your work. Y'all see what I'm talking about? One thing Solomon learned in that 40-year reign was that possessions and money really won't bring you much happiness. In fact, he had learned that the more you have, the more complicated life becomes. That's why simplicity is a good thing for the follower of Christ. The more you have, the more you have to ensure The more you have to protect, the more anxious and stressed you need to be, the more stuff you have to worry about. And that's why the United States of America tends not to be among the world's happiest countries. Sociologists have studied these things for decades. We're the happiest countries in the world. The USA is never in the top 10. 
Most of those that end up every year perennially the top 10 happiest countries, which basically means here's where the happiest people in the world tend to live. Half of them are Scandinavian countries, Finland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway. That's where the happiest people in the world tend to live. There are two more on the top 10 list that are almost Scandinavian countries, like Luxembourg. Who's ever even heard of Luxembourg? Lots of happy people there, apparently. And then a couple of European countries like Austria and Switzerland. Easy to understand that. Who wouldn't be happy with those mountain views? Amen. And the USA is never on the top 10. It's in the top 20, but not in the top 10. And you, you wonder, the irony is, why aren't we number one? Man, we got more material wealth than any country on the planet per capita. Why are we not the singular happiest group of people in the whole world? Solomon's conclusion is because when you focus on that, there's really no profit in it. You may profit materially in this life. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the end all of your life, you'll find that you really haven't profited at all because one day you're going to be stripped of all of that. One of those scriptures up there is that the wise and the fool all end up in the same grave. And we might add too that so do the rich and the poor. And Solomon realized that. The people who were taking care of his bedchamber, emptying the chamber pots out, Solomon realized that in the scheme of eternity, he was no different than those guys. And that's why he says it. I saw that this too was vanity, a chasing after the wind. Trivial pursuits. Y'all hanging with me? Amen. Intellectualism, hedonism, materialism. And then finally, Solomon mentions workaholism. Workaholism. Solomon treads here for a minute because some might be tempted to say, well, money can't buy you happiness, and that's, that's why you need to find a job, find a career that you really enjoy, right? How many people do you actually know that are absolutely in love with what they do for a living? I mean, I mean unless you're calling play-by-play for the St. Louis Cardinals or the Atlanta, you know what I'm saying? Those are the dream jobs that everybody looks forward to. But people will say that. Find something that you're really happy in life. And I said that to my kids. You know, you need to chase after something that puts a smile on your face and do what makes you happy. And the longer I live, here's the thing. You need to do what pays the bills. And you need to thank God for it and learn to be grateful for it. Because through that, comes the providing hand of God in your life. And you're doubly blessed if you find something that you cut yourself shaving, guys, that you're so looking forward to getting to it every morning. Solomon's perspective, the king of Israel, peak wealth, $2 trillion, most powerful man in the kingdom, really at his peak, the most powerful man in the world, His perspective is not only is the fruit of your labor unsatisfying, trying to find significance even in the work itself is also what? Vanity. That's right. 
chasing after wind. Look at verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he'll be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Can somebody say amen to that this morning? Life's a raw deal. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a what? Say it out loud. There's that word again. His work, wisdom was a vexation, and now Solomon's finding work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. <laughs> Solomon's a lot like Henry Ford. You remember Henry Ford, right? Well, you probably don't remember him. He's like really old and in the grave. But he founded the automobile company that bears his name. And you know what Henry Ford said when he was at the pinnacle of his career? I was happier when I was a mechanic working in a shop. Listen, there have been days I want to go to Ken Parnell, recreation ministry, who's over our grounds, and say, would you please put me on a lawnmower for about three days? I'm going to turn everything else over to these chumps, I mean these pastors in the office, and just give, let me have the tractor, all right? I think every, all of us in positions of leadership have felt that at some time or another because you climb the ladder of success and find the higher you get, the more dizzy you become in life. Man, there used to be a time where you could go home. I can remember when I was a young pastor even, you could go home and leave work behind. You know, you go home and take the landline off the hook, just do that number to it. Now, but night's peak, you can't do that anymore. Smartphone with you all the time, man. It's, you have it beside the bed. You have it beside, on the table beside where you watch television. Now, smartphones, smart devices, laptops. I mean, those days are, are gone. So there's little separation between home and work anymore. We've already seen how knowledge was a vexation to Solomon. Now we see that he says the same thing about work. It confounded him. The Bible says here, he confesses, it robbed me of my sleep. Have y'all ever lost sleep because of stuff going on at work? I'm just saying the demons come out in the darkness, don't they? And you're not thinking about it much because you've got all these distractions, but then you lie in the bed and you cut the lights off and everything goes quiet and here it comes. And you toss and turn all night. Mama gets up at 3.30 in the morning. What are you doing? What is, I just can't sleep. Stuff going on in your mind. And usually it's about work-related things. Not always, sometimes there's other stuff, but usually it's about stuff we got going on in our work. And Solomon was vexed in large part, as we just read, because he'd come to the conclusion that he was going to die and largely be forgotten. And so will you. 
And here's the thing, you got to be okay with that. I mean, th- there's a big percentage of people in here that could not name their great-great-grandparents by name. You say, well, I can. Well, what about great-great-great? You can't do it. So you got to be okay with living your life to please the Lord. Because one of these days you'll die and all that stuff that you've been working for and building all those storage barns, you're going to leave them to somebody else. And you're going to leave the stuff at your office or your firm or your church or whatever. You're going to walk away from that one day or be taken from it and you're going to leave it to somebody else and they may build upon it or they may crash and burn the whole thing. And that's what caused Solomon a real problem. Everything that he built, everything that he amassed, he realized it's all going to be left to others. And they'd either improve upon it or they'd waste it. I mean, Solomon was particular about his Mercedes. He wouldn't let any of his kids eat in it. And he had this vision in his mind. My oldest boy's going to get it and he's going to be eating pizza and sloshing drinks all over it. I mean, in his fine heart shafter and mark suits and Italian cut loafers, Solomon realized one day they're all just going to end up in a Sisters of Charity flea market. And they're going to be sold for pennies on the dollar. And the irony is that's exactly what happened to Solomon. Because he didn't raise his boys with a whole lot of wisdom. And that oldest boy of his wrecked the kingdom of God. Caused a split in the kingdom into a northern and southern portion. And Solomon realized that. That one day he was going to become like Joseph. You know one of the most amazing verses in the Bible is the introductory statement to the book of Exodus where the Bible says that there arose a king in Egypt who knew not Joseph. How do you forget about Joseph? Joseph. The man who saved the kingdom in a time of severe famine. Joseph was a legend. And yet, after the passing of time, there came a new king whose response was, Joseph who? And Solomon began to think about that. That's what they're going to be saying about me one day. One day a hero, next day a zero. It's all just one day going to go up in a puff of smoke. The American Film Institute has named Citizen Kane the most important movie of all time. I'm sorry to disappoint the John Wayne fans here today, but the Duke's not on the top 10 of the American Film Institute. Citizen Kane. Anybody here ever seen the movie Citizen Kane? That's really not surprising because it's a 1940s era movie and it's all dialogue. You know, and we, we got to have action and guns blazing. Citizen Kane, though, is a great movie. <clears throat> Orson Welles has the lead role starring as Charles Foster Kane. It's basically a takeoff on William Randolph Hearst, who was a great newspaper man in the United States, built the Hearst Castle. This was a man that became a gajillionaire. And it's really patterned after his life. Charles Foster Kane was born in humble circumstances in Colorado, and he rose from poverty to become a newspaper magnate, 
one of the wealthiest and most important men in the world, but in the end of the movie, he dies this bitter, warped, frustrated wreck of a man who through the latter years of his life was like Henry Ford. He just longed to go back to the simpler days when life was not so complicated. And I want us to take a look at the final scene of the movie Citizen Kane this morning. It's about three minutes long, but it's worth the watch this morning because Citizen Kane is a running commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's dim the lights. If you brought a popcorn snack, pull it out of the purse now. And let's watch the big screen. What have you been doing all this time? Playing with a jigsaw puzzle? If you could have found out what that rosebud meant, I bet that would have explained everything. No, I don't think so. No. Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. Maybe Rosebud was something he couldn't get or something he lost. Anyway, it wouldn't have explained anything. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. No, I guess Rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle. A missing piece. Well, come on, everybody. We'll miss the train. that junk.
That's what Solomon's talking about right there. All that warehouse was full of his stuff that he spent his whole life attaining. And then once he died, it was good for nothing except to be thrown into the incinerator and all go up in a puff of smoke. That sled is critically important. I'm not going to go in because I don't want to be a spoiler this morning, but that sled is the one emblem of his childhood that he was longing to go back to throughout the entire movie. And then what a powerful ending to focus in on a no trespassing sign. And why do they put that there? Because the message is don't go there. Don't go there. Don't do that. Don't trespass. Don't mimic. Don't make the acquisition of all of that stuff the end all of your life because it'll lead to nothing but vexation and disappointment because you cannot carry it with you. It will all ultimately go up in a puff of smoke. And Solomon says the same thing. This is where he's landed. And this commentary about his own life concerning the trivial pursuits that he had chased throughout his life. His conclusion is critical. It's in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Translation, there is meaningful pursuit in life. Life doesn't have to be a series of trivial pursuits. There is meaningful pursuit in life, and it's this. The only way to really enjoy life is to keep God at the center of everything that you're about. Keep God at the center of your bank accounts. Keep God at the center of your toys. Keep God at the center of your hobbies. Keep God at the center of your relationships. Keep God at the center of your property. Keep God at the center of your investments. Jesus summarized it as well as any place you'll ever find it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us that there is always vexation when you turn that statement of Jesus on its head. When you seek first the things of this world and either ignore God or try to fit God in where you can, when you can, you'll end up saying the same thing Solomon did. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We end today the same place we ended last week with the immortal words of Augustine. He who has God has everything. He who has not God has nothing at all. This is the Word of God and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.